Our scripture reading this morning, uh, prior to our sermon passage, is taken from Exodus chapter 14, verses 26 to 31. And then our sermon passage this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 to 23. You'll see that this is a, a much longer chapter than the previous few chapters have been. And so we're splitting the chapter up today. 1 Samuel 14, verses 1 to 23. Uh, but first, our scripture reading is taken from Exodus chapter 14, verses 26 to 31. Brothers and sisters, as always, a reminder to you that the Word of God is about to be read publicly. The Holy Spirit accompanies the public reading and preaching of His Word. So you would do well today even to say a prayer for yourselves that you might give your full attention to God's Word. Because it is a sword. It divides our souls. It divides and it heals. It instructs and it builds us up in our faith. So please listen carefully to God's Word. Exodus 14, verses 26 to 31. The Lord said to Moses, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now turning to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 to 23. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. When the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison Within those passes, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. And the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and on the other, on the south, in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we shall stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. 
But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrisons and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with them, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And so Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to, the, uh, to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Aven. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we know that as far as it concerns your people, the battle belongs to you. Lord, we know that every battle that we face in this life, we do not face it alone, and we are not the primary, the primary fighter in these battles. We know, Lord, your word teaches us that you fight our battles for us, those spiritual battles, those battles of life and death. You fight them for us. Indeed, O oh Lord, you have fought the most important, the crucial battle for your people. In the Lord Jesus Christ, in His life, and His death, and His resurrection. By this, O oh Lord, You have secured our salvation. You have made it a certainty. You have enshrined it in the highest place in heaven. There is no possibility for those who are truly saved that they can lose their salvation. And so we are grateful, O oh Lord, that You are the God of our salvation. We pray that by your spirit, you would teach us from your word today. We pray that you would give each of us ears to hear. We pray that you would bless the one who preaches. And that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. And that your people would be built up, edified, strengthened, encouraged. 
We pray this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, in one sense, following the catastrophic events for Saul that came after his unlawful sacrifice, one could argue that the glory of the Lord had once again departed from Israel. You remember, of course, when that phrase was uttered back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 by the mother of Ichabod after his birth, that she had just heard that her husband Phinehas had been killed in battle and that his father Eli, the priest at Shiloh, had died as well. But worst of all for her and for the people of Israel was the fact that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines when it had been recklessly taken into battle because the elders of Israel thought that it was some sort of a magical relic that would bring them victory. The truth was that they were attempting to bind God, that they were attempting to manipulate God. They were attempting to force Him to give them victory in battle. Later on in chapter 6, when the Lord saw fit to have the ark return to Israel, He did it through no effort of His own people. He did it Himself. Now, after what Saul had done in chapter 13... After Samuel telling Saul that God had rejected him and his family line as king, Saul is hiding out in a cave in fear with no guidance from the Lord. Samuel has departed from Saul. He will not be there for Saul to give him the word of the Lord. And most of Saul's standing army had fled. That 3,000 people, uh, those 3,000 men that that Saul had mustered to be a, a regular standing army, they had gone to the hills. They had crossed the Jordan River. They had gone away. And so his troops had been reduced down to about 600 men. In the absence of a prophet of the Lord, now he has brought on the great grandson of Eli to serve as priest, wearing an ephod, apparently now in the hopes of divining God's will because he doesn't have any other way to determine it. But the upshot was that Saul, the king, was doing nothing. And so our passage more formally introduces us to Saul's son, Jonathan. He was first introduced back in chapter 13, verse 1, but no mention there was made of the fact that he was Saul's son. Now, those of us who have read through this, those of us who know a little bit of Bible history, we read it and we know, okay, Jonathan, that's Saul's son. But the author of the book of 1 Samuel doesn't mention that in chapter 13, verse 1. It's only now, in chapter 14, that he mentions this fact. Jonathan is the person, had Saul not been disobedient, think about this, he is the one, had Saul not disobeyed, had he not grown impatient, had he not unlawfully made that sacrifice, Jonathan is the one who would have been the next king. And Jonathan proved that he would have been a far better king than his father. And that is because Jonathan took God at God's word. Jonathan believed that God alone was the savior of his people, where Saul thought that he was. Saul let it go to his head. Saul became desperate because he thought that he was the essential one uh, to battle, to fight against the Philistines. But Jonathan understands the truth. As we work our way through the sermon passage today, I would invite you to ask you to consider this thought. Nothing can prevent God from saving his people because God has fought the battles that have won it for us. Nothing can prevent God from saving his people because God has fought the battles that have won our salvation for us. 
The sermon is divided into three sections today. The first section, out of hiding. The second section, no hindrances. And the third, return of the Hebrews. Once again, out of hiding, that's the first section of the sermon. No hindrances is the second. And the third, return of the Hebrews. So let's look now at the first section of the sermon, out of hiding. The stage for chapter 14, as we saw last week, is set in chapter 13. These two chapters really go very much hand in hand. The last verse, particularly, of chapter 13 says this, And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Saul and his men, including Jonathan and his armor bearer, were staying near Gibeah in the pomegranate cave, or more literally, under the pomegranate tree. There's no uh, word for cave there in uh, verse, uh, these opening verses of chapter 14. The cave is an inference based in part on what the Philistines say about Jonathan in verse 11. Michmash, as we saw in last week's passage, was only about six miles from Gibeah. And unfortunately, it was the location that Saul and his 2,000 men had previously held. Now this place was in the hand of the Philistines. It was high ground, and Saul now was hiding out, possibly in a cave, under this aforementioned pomegranate tree. And so whether literally or metaphorically, Saul and his army have gone underground. They no longer had the sort of, uh, I'm sorry, the support of Samuel, and so Saul had brought Eli's great-grandson into the camp wearing an ephod. And most likely, the, the ephod that Ahijah is wearing is not the kind of linen garment that Samuel wore at the tabernacle. We'll read there back earlier in 1 Samuel that, that, that Samuel, when he was a young boy, he wore this linen ephod. Instead, it's most likely, most likely of the oracular kind of ephod. It was associated with the Urim and the Thummim, which were used by the priests to determine the will of God. And so the ephod, in this case, it might have been a receptacle that the priest wore around his waist that contained the lots that were so often cast to determine what the will of the Lord was. And so if this is the case, Saul was attempting to replace Samuel with the heir of the house of Eli, who was carrying, uh, wearing an ephod which carried lots that he would cast and roll, in a sense, like uh, dice. As we read in verse 1, Jonathan told his armor bearer to go with him over to the Philistine garrison at Michmash. Notably, and I think this is important, Jonathan did not tell his father. It appears that Jonathan doesn't fully trust his father. Jonathan and his assistant sneak out of hiding and they make their way to the pass that has been identified as the, the Wadi Suanit which runs east to west, and it cuts deep through uh, a deep trough through, uh, uh, or toward the Jordan River with very steep banks on either side. And the slopes on either side going down to the bed of this wadi or dry riverbed are so difficult that they have, they've been named Bozes and Senna, which might mean, possibly, it's not uh, confirmed with absolute certainty, but these two names might mean slippery and thorny, and if so, they indicate how difficult it was to use them. This just proves that the rock climber's tradition of uh, naming difficult routes goes back at least 3,000 years. Now, I realize that this is Mother's Day, and... uh, I have to make a confession. When I was in college, I don't think I did that great of a job in honoring my mother. When I was in college, I 
for a physical education class. My college was in the mountains of North Carolina, and there were some fairly craggy places around. And so for a physical education uh, uh, credit that I needed to get in order to graduate, I took a rock climbing class, much to the chagrin of my mother. She's not real happy with the idea that one of her sons was climbing high up on rocks uh, and could potentially fall down. And we would go to, to places around in western North Carolina and climb these rocks. And many of the, of the routes that were there, they had names. They were given names. Nothing tremendously dangerous, despite what my mom might have believed. But there are extremely dangerous rock climbing routes in various places around the world. And, and some of you are probably familiar with uh, the, the, the fact that rock climbers love Yosemite National Park. I've never climbed any rocks. I haven't climbed rocks in well over 20 years, going on 30 years now. I would never trust myself to do such a thing uh, anymore. But at Yosemite National Park, there are rock climbing routes named Aunt Fanny's Pantry and Bring in the Fembots. But some of the more difficult routes have names like Wicked Gravity, which is on a rock formation called the Killer Pillar. And that's kind of what the names are like here in 1 Samuel. These, these rock formations that Jonathan and his armor bearer have to first climb down, which is a very difficult thing. We would always rappel down, not try to climb down. It's harder to climb down a rock face in many cases than it is to climb up. And Jonathan and his armor bearer didn't have the fancy gear that we had. They didn't have the special shoes that, that had really good grip on the rock face. They didn't have the, the ropes and the harnesses and the belay, the, the belay devices. But the thing that we can take from this is that if these routes have names, these crags have names, then that means that they have been climbed and descended before. And so for Jonathan, there is a way down to the riverbed and there's a way back up the other side, as dangerous as these things may be. It is possible, of course, that Jonathan has, has climbed and descended these routes before. But here's the thing. If you've ever done any climbing of any kind, and especially rock climbing, it's very physically demanding. And these two men run the risk of being physically exhausted by the time that they reach the top of the north bank on their approach to the Philistine garrison. But despite all of these risks, they move toward the Philistines undaunted and unhindered. And that leads us to the second point of the sermon, no hindrances. In verse 6, Jonathan tells his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now just imagine, they're, they're standing on the, on the south side of this wadi, this deep trough. And they're looking across to the other side. They're scouting things out as wise, wise to do in military operations. It may be that Yahweh will work for us, for nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving by many or by few. Now, you may not be aware of this, but Jonathan's name means God has given. And I think we can say here with certainty that Jonathan believes the meaning of his name. He isn't taking it for granted at this point. He doesn't know for certainty that it's a given that he's going to win this battle against this entire Philistine uh, garrison that's located across the wadi from where he and his armor bearer are standing. But he believes that it may well be that God is going to give them the victory over this Philistine garrison, these uncircumcised, as he puts it. Jonathan understands that if it is the will of God for him and his assistant to defeat the Philistines, that there is nothing that the Philistines or anyone else can do to stop it. And it doesn't matter how physically exhausted they are going into the battle. If it is God's will, it will happen. But he's still cautious. 
He doesn't wish to be presumptuous, as if he knows the secret will of God at this point. He doesn't. Jonathan knows that God doesn't need him to defeat the Philistines. God can do it with many or with few or with none at all. In verse 7, his armor bearer encourages him to go forward. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, with you, heart and soul. His armor bearer is there with him. Jonathan has one loyal, trusted assistant. Jonathan's armor bearer trusts Jonathan as much as Jonathan trusts the Lord. Jonathan, for his part, is brave, but Jonathan's no dummy. He says in verses 8 to 10, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for Yahweh has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. Now, In the absence of the completed canon... In that day when Jonathan and this assistant were standing there on the south side of this wadi, about the most that they had of the canon of Scripture would have been the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. In the absence of a completed canon, they needed to do such things as to throw things out there, to look for a sign, to see what the Lord would have them do. We have God's full revelation. And now so often it's the case that that based on what we understand, based on the wisdom that the Lord has given to us from his word, that we have to make decisions based on sanctified common sense. It may not always be the right decision. It could be the wrong decision. But we're, we're not in the position of being able to just throw things out there and wait for a sign from the Lord. We may find ourselves waiting for the rest of our lives for that sign if we do so. God has equipped you and me with his word. He's given to us his Holy Spirit. We have sanctified common sense. There are times when we simply need to make a decision. If it's not sinful, if we're on the horns of a dilemma and neither one of the choices we make is a sinful choice, then we just have to make the decision. But Jonathan here wisely waits for a sign from the Lord. And he makes it very specific. Though his father Saul has lost Samuel and therefore lost the word of the Lord, Jonathan trusts God and he's asking for God to give him a sign that will confirm whether or not he will give to them the victory over the Philistine garrison. And so when he and his armor bearer reach the bottom of the south slope and are in the dry riverbed, and the Philistines see them and call out in verse 11, they, they say, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. They know they are in the cave. They're coming out. Now they're at the moment of truth. What will God's sign be to them? Will the Philistines call them up or will they not? Will will Jonathan and his assistant remain there in the riverbed? Will they not uh, take take the risk of going to battle or will they? Verse 12 gives the answer. Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. In other words, we'll show you a thing or two. We're going to put you in your place. What are two men against an entire garrison uh, in the Philistine army? And Jonathan shows no hesitation when he tells his assistant, Come up after me, for Yahweh has given them into the hand of Israel. Now if you look at verses 13 and 14, nowhere do you see it stated that Jonathan killed anyone. It's as if, in the words of one of the commentators, there's a void here in these verses about really what Jonathan did. 
His armor bearer is described as killing them after they fell before Jonathan. They, 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 they climb up. Jonathan's climbing with his hands and his feet. He gets to the top, and the next thing we know, the Philistine uh, members, those soldiers of the garrison, they are fell, falling before him. It's almost as if Jonathan doesn't have to raise his sword, one of the only two swords the Israelites have, the other being in the possession of his father back in this cave under this tree. The author of 1 Samuel wants his readers to understand that first and foremost, it is God who is doing the fighting, not Jonathan. It is God before whom the Philistine soldiers fell, though uh, God is indeed using Jonathan and his armor bearers as means. This is an unmistakable victory of the Lord, just as with Jericho, so with the Philistine garrison. Twenty men taken on by two and defeated and killed. At least twenty men. There were probably more, but there were twenty men who were killed by these two men. Bodies strewn halfway across an acre of land. Now imagine this for a minute, to put it in modern terms for those of you who are football fans. This would be like two players on offense taking off at the 50-yard line and going all the way through to the end zone, not weaving or evading the defensive players there, but plowing straight through them to full-sized defensive teams and taking out the majority of them. This could not have been the work of just two men. In the words of, of Admiral Lord Nelson, uh, why use maneuvers? Just go straight at them. And that's exactly what they did. Verse 15 co confirms that this is not just the work of two men. We read there, and there was a panic in the camp, camp in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. The rest of the Philistines in the garrison, how many ever, whatever number it was, they were thrown into confusion and panic. The implied supernatural defeat of the 20 soldiers becomes more explicit when the earthquake is mentioned in verse 15. And so we see here that the God of Israel is most certainly at work defeating the enemies of his people. Just as Jonathan trusted, just as he said... Now, as we're going to see, Jonathan, later on as we, as we make our way through the rest of, of 1 Samuel, we'll see that Jonathan is a most remarkable man. He is a valiant soldier. He is a loyal friend. But we must admit, we, we must confess here that Jonathan's most remarkable attribute is his childlike faith, his childlike trust in the Lord. He doesn't quiver in fear in holes in the ground like Saul and the other 598 soldiers. He doesn't go around boasting about his accomplishments either. He trusts in the mighty hand of the Lord. He trusts in God. He does what he needs to do with the confidence that God will do what he has promised. He knows that his life rests in God's hands. And so he's not fearful of what might happen to him. He is a, a man with true faith. And with a, a very robust faith, a, a strong faith. Jonathan knows that God has always kept the promises that he made with his people in the past. So there was no reason he wouldn't continue to keep the promises that he's made to his people now and in the future. God promised that he would give the land of Canaan to his people. And even though they were enslaved in Egypt against seemingly impossible odds, humanly speaking, God delivered them out of Egypt. He caused them to escape Pharaoh's army. 
He caused them to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. And even before they had finished crossing, he caused the Egyptians to get stuck in the mud. And he threw them into confusion. And he made the water behind them collapse in on the Egyptians and crush them. And Israel walked out of the Red Sea a free people, unhindered. Jonathan knew his history. He knew the history of his people. He knew that God had redeemed his people before, and he knew that the God of Israel was the God of salvation and would redeem him and his people now. And what we must confess here is that Jonathan's faith, this this strong and abiding faith that Jonathan had, this wasn't something that Jonathan created within himself. It wasn't something that he was able to muster. The faith that Jonathan had was a gift to him. And so when when Jonathan's father and the rest of the diminished army of Israel were hiding out in fear, Jonathan believed He believed in God, that God would do what he had promised to do, to save his people. That brings us to the third and final point of the sermon today, the return of the Hebrews. The Philistine garrison was not the only camp to be thrown into confusion by the events surrounding the attack. The Israelites felt the earthquake apparently as well. They had sentries who were out uh, uh, watching, keeping watch. Uh, They became aware that something was happening at the Philistine garrison. They sent word back to their king, to Saul. And Saul had his men do a quick head count. Uh, one thing that, that, that uh, armies, that, that soldiers are really good at is, is lining up in formation and counting one another. That's one of the main things that, that the military does. They, they, they keep a good count, always counting. It's probably the best thing they do in many ways. And so they did a quick head count. They determined that Jonathan and his armor bearer were uh, neither present nor accounted for. In verse 18, Saul told Ahijah, the priest, to go and fetch the ark of God. Saul apparently does not remember even the most recent history of Israel. He seems to have forgotten that God fulfills his promises, but he also had forgotten what happened the last time the ark of the covenant was brought into battle. But as Saul was talking to Ahijah, the uproar in the Philistine camp continued to grow. And so Saul told the priest in verse 19, withdraw your hand. Never mind, don't go after the ark after all. There's not time to do it. Verse 20 says that Saul and all Israel, meaning these uh, 600 men, they rallied and they went into battle. There was so much confusion taking place that the Philistines ended up killing each other. And verses 21 and 22 say that, that Hebrews who had joined up with the Philistines, those who had, had gone to the other side, and some of those who had deserted Israel when Saul was waiting impatiently for Samuel at Gilgal, they came back now to join Israel in the battle. They wouldn't give their fellow Israelites the time of day when things hadn't been going so well. But now that the tables had turned, these, Israel, these Hebrews rather were quick to come back and join in, perhaps hoping that in the confusion, no one would notice. But how different in reality were these returning soldiers from Saul himself? It was only when Saul became aware of the confusion in the Philistine camp It was only when Saul became aware that Jonathan and his armor bearer were missing that he decided to take uh, action against the Philistines. It was only when he realized that maybe it's safe for me to go out into battle now. Up to that point, he'd been too afraid to do anything. He was paralyzed by fear. He was probably guilt-ridden and angry over what had happened to Gilgal. Probably was bitter. 
And so he didn't trust the Lord. He'd forgotten the promises of the Lord. But now, he's, he's an opportunist. And he knows he's got to get in there. Saul shows for us how our sin can erode our confidence and our trust in the Lord. This is one of the things that our catechisms and our confession teach us. That, that sin... That our sin, your sin, my sin, it has an impact on on the strength of our faith and and our sense of assurance of salvation. As we've said, Saul's actions in verses 16 to 20, they seem opportunistic. They seem similar to the actions of the Israelites described in verses 21 and 22. Saul at this point is only trying to cling to his kingship as long as he can. He needs a a mark in the win column. He needs a victory in battle to bring back to the Israelite people. He needs them to regain their trust in their leader. Rather than a king, he's becoming a politician. But even though Saul is trying to get the credit for the victory against the Philistines that day, the author of 1 Samuel knows better. And our passage this morning ends with these words in verse 23. So Yahweh saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Bethaven. Not Saul, not Jonathan, not Samuel, not the great grandson of Eli, the, the, the former priest who had fallen over backwards and died. Yahweh, the Lord, he had saved Israel that day. Saul would rob glory from the Lord if he could. And that seems to be what he's attempting here in in mustering these men and and rushing out into battle when he hears that the Philistines are in confusion and panic. But the truth was, the victory that day, as always, belonged to the Lord. Our indulgence in sin, when we give in to temptation, as you know, temptation in and of itself, it is not sin. Each of us are tempted every day to sin. Temptation is not sin when we give into it, when we indulge in it. That's sin, and our indulgence in sin makes us prone to give credit where credit is not due. We become opportunistic. We try to take advantage of God's victory over our sin by saying that we've done it ourselves. If we believe that faith is the ground of our salvation, then faith is something that I have worked in myself. To earn my salvation. We are all prone to the theology of works righteousness. The belief that we can earn our way into heaven by our own good works. Now sometimes this theology is front loaded. I chose Christ. I made the decision. I did it. I heard the gospel preached. I chose to believe. Sometimes it's back loaded through the belief in final justification or some other errant doctrine where your good works throughout your life as a Christian are factored in on your standing at judgment day in the determination of whether you're truly saved or not. And brothers and sisters, this is a doctrine that is making the rounds again in the Reformed Church. That you can't be certain of your standing before the Lord until all of your good works at the end of your life are evaluated on the day of judgment. And if that is true, then what that means is that you do contribute to your salvation. That is not what the Bible teaches. 
And it's not what this passage is teaching. In both of these cases, and any other where our works enter into our salvation, glory is robbed from God. Or at least that's the attempt. The truth is, the victory is the Lord's from start to finish. God alone is the God of our salvation. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the author and the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who started it, and He is the one who brings it to completion. If you have true faith in Jesus Christ, that faith itself is a gift from God. It did not come from within you, it came from without. A gracious gift given to you by the Holy Spirit. The truth is, you can take no credit for anything with regards to your salvation. And even your good works. If you're a believer in Christ, they were predestined for you before the foundation of the world. God gave these good works for you in which to walk. The Christian life is one of taking no credit for ourselves, but giving it all to the Lord. In recognizing that you and I, we have never won a single battle in our lives. And if it were up to us, we would fall and fail and die in our sins and misery. God has done it all. From beginning to end. And that makes our salvation from start to finish a gift. A gracious gift of the Lord. If you are able to do good works, it is only as a byproduct of the fact that you have true and saving faith. It is a byproduct of the fact that the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in you. And the good works that you do, that you probably aren't even aware of, they serve to give glory to God and not to yourself. They are only evidence of saving faith, fruit of saving faith, and not... The work of salvation itself. The victory is the Lord's from start to finish. There is nothing that you and I can do to add to or to take away from this victory over sin in our lives. And it is for that reason that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can have true, solid assurance of salvation. Because you know that it is not you. That you haven't done a thing. That the only thing that you have committed, that you have given, that you have, uh, that you have contributed to your salvation is the sin that put Christ on the cross. That's it. Christ alone is worthy. He is the one who has won, he is the one who has won the victory over your sin and my sin. Over the devil himself. Over hell, he has done it for you and for me. And brothers, that is the good news. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, dear Lord, that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. We thank you, Lord, that you have granted to us salvation in this battle in which we are. The battle that is that is a pitched battle that is, that is being waged. We thank you, O Lord, that you go before us into battle and that you're our rear guard. We thank you that you have indeed given us victory. 
We pray that you would remind us again and again of this fact, of this truth, so that we don't fall into the temptation to believe that we've done anything to earn our salvation, to merit it. Thank you, O Lord, for the gift of salvation. Thank you, O Lord, for the gift of faith, for the gift of perseverance, for the gift of adoption, for the gift of sanctification, for that precious gift of justification. We look forward, O Lord, to that day when we can fully enjoy the gift of glorification and to rest from all of our labors. We pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.